Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to our broadcast of the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. My name is Steve Lassard, and I'll be your host this evening. Tonight, we are privileged to have Jack Cornfield joining us. Jack is broadcasting live from Fairfax, California, while I and the Sounds True team are all in our Boulder, Colorado studio. Welcome, Jack. Hi, Stephen. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be here and glad to know that you're listening. And I've been thinking about you all, all 300 of you, because I know this is the practicum year. And um, most all of you have started your practicums or are doing it. So the session and the conversation tonight, which includes 60 questions uh, that, you were, uh, that you sent to me, is about um, the challenges and expectations in the role of teacher. So again, I'm really happy that you're doing it. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And as you begin, of course, you might be a little bit nervous you know, am I doing it right? Do I know what I'm doing? You might have doubts. Doubts are actually quite natural. They're part of our human experience. Um, uh, and one of the things I've learned early on in my own teaching is that when I became nervous or doubtful, um, that was because it was focused on me. How will I look? Will I do well? Will I think I'm a fool? Which on occasion I have been. But when I see into those thoughts and look more deeply in myself, I realized that it's not about me. It's actually about um, presenting and embodying and offering a series of practices and understandings that can change people's lives. And that's what I'm able to offer and deliver to them. And for some, it will work. And for some, it won't perhaps be the right medicine. Um, but my job is just to make it available to them. And that sort of calms my heart in some way um, when I do it. It is an honor to be in the role of a teacher, as you know, um, and to become somehow a carrier of or transparent to uh, uh, some wisdom and some love that flows through us all. Um, and what we're offering are both simple and yet revolutionary practices and skills. Um, how to tend to your own body, how to be present for your own emotions in a wise way, how to calm your mind and use your breath, how to look at the stream of thoughts and realize that you don't have to believe all of them, that you can notice them and step out of them in some way or see which are healthy and worthwhile following and which not to be so identified with. 
you remember that story of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, walking along the alms round in the morning with the monks in their alms bowl um, around dawn, seeing a huge boulder out in the field and asking, like a Zen master would, monks, is that boulder heavy? And, of course, the monk said, yes, master, it is. And he smiled and he said, not if you don't pick it up. And there's some fundamental way in which the mindfulness that we're teaching to people brings a spaciousness of mind and heart so that we can step back, if you will, and be present, but not lost or caught in our experience. So first thing I want to say is to relax. Teaching is a practice in the same way that learning a musical instrument or learning to write code, you know, for a computer program or learning a sport or learning how to garden. Um, and it takes some practice. And at first it can feel awkward and you can doubt yourself. Will these plants grow? I'll put seeds in the ground and water them. Is it really going to work? Um, the plants know how to grow and you will grow as well in it. Um, and so that kind of trust is really important. They come for a reason. They're there to listen to you because something in there, in their heart and mind knows that it's of value to, um, to be, pay attention, to be more present, to bring more compassion or forgiveness, gratitude into their own lives. And you can trust that those seeds in them really want to open and blossom and grow. And you don't have to make it too fancy. You can really teach from what you know. Now, in terms of the role of a teacher, um, there are different parts to it. Um, it's very helpful in your groups and when you begin, first to welcome them and make a kind of hospitable um, environment for those who come. Um, and then to tell them each time in some way, whether you're doing a day long or you're starting a class, um, tell them what you're going to be doing in a simple way. We're going to be training in mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of emotions or mindfulness of how to be aware of the thoughts and mind or, or how to move and stand with mindfulness. Or we'll be training in mindfulness and compassion or loving kindness. And you can tell them why and say, we, you know, we so benefit from this because the society is so speedy and we get caught up and reactive in many ways or stressed. We get disconnected from our bodies from our hearts or the things that matter. And so in these simple practices, we'll be quieting ourselves, quieting the mind, listening to the heart, connecting with our bodies and with our deeper values. Um, and now let's begin. So you frame it in some beautiful way. You remind them of what the value of it is. Um, and then you connect with them. You teach, you listen to them, let them ask questions. And you really listen with your heart. You're not there so much to just solve all the problems, but also to make sure that they feel listened to, that their questions are understood and honored in some way. And then, of course, you have the trainings and practices that you offer. And remember, there's the wonderful book, The Clinician's Guide to Teaching Mindfulness, that you have from Christiana Wolf. And there are the outlines that we've given you um, for a four-week and six-week class and so forth. One thing you might want to look at as you um, reflect on the role of teacher, there's a wonderful book written by Parker Palmer. This is the 20th anniversary edition of it. 
called The Courage to Teach. Um, and he's a, a brilliant and heartfelt educator. And he really talks about teaching from your own wholeness, from who you are, and seeing the beauty or the wholeness in the students, that there's something that they're awakening to and connecting with. And also trusting that as you do it in community, there's a growing wisdom. He almost speaks about it as a kind of grace that as people's voices come in and you respond and others say things in questions and answers, that somehow the whole community becomes wiser by listening to one another. So now let me um, go ahead and try to answer some of these 60 or more questions. And, you know, I'll do it in whatever way I can. I just sort of start at the top and um, maybe it'll be like um, Jeopardy or something, see how the answers go. Um, um, they're wonderful questions. And I love reading them and I'll try to be helpful to you because you, um, in sending these questions, they're heartfelt, they're genuine. Um, they really express what you're learning and what you're struggling with in this time to become good teachers. And I feel in them your sincerity. And I feel in them also how you are becoming the channels um, of wisdom and offering these blessings, these gifts, these trainings and capacities that you've um, explored in yourself as possibilities for those who come to you. So um, these are a whole series of questions that came from you. Please share the questions you might have about particular challenges you uh, as teachers face. First one asks about um, in a day-long training, um, teaching in mindfulness of thought using Tara Brock's phrase, uh, real but not true, and how confusing that was, especially to some people in the group who were devout Christians, and what reality meant to them was very different, perhaps, than the notion from Tara of real but not true. So what I would say simply to that is, that's a certain language that may appeal to you or a certain group. I don't actually find real but not true so helpful to me. I would actually put it as um, thoughts are present, but they're not necessarily true. Because when we start talking about what's real, am I real? Now you're seeing these kind of pixelated images on the screen. What is real? And where is that in your brain? And what does reality mean anyway? Let's not go there. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to, to talk about and think about, but I think keeping it simple. So the thoughts are present, but not always true. And then when you frame it that way, you can answer this person's question. How can I help students to start noticing healthy versus unhealthy thoughts? Framed in that way, you can invite them to examine which thoughts seem to have their best interest in mind and which thoughts they know or can sense in their being, their intuition, their experience are actually destructive or unhealthy or don't lead them in a way that follows the values of their being and their heart. Next question, I've been asked to teach an individual person but was worried I would be acting more as a counselor, felt that was crossing a line. Sometimes um, you may choose to choose teach individuals and that's completely fine. What's helpful is two things, to trust yourself. 
If it feels intuitively like it's the wrong thing to do for you personally or with that person, you can say, you know, I mostly like to teach in a group in a class. I find that to be more effective. Um, if you do teach individuals, you can remind them, I am teaching mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness. This is what I've been trained to do. I'm not a counselor, but I certainly can help you with the practices and trainings we're doing together. So that kind of transparency is good. And the trusting of yourself that you'll know whether you should work with an individual or not. Next question, Jack. Many of us then program our therapists. This is from a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And we have very different guidelines. We work from an illness model that we're trying to treat. Um, uh, and uh, we have rules that come in the psychotherapy profession and then the medical profession. Um, uh, what's difficult for me to see, I can teach meditation in that session, is how to offer these skills outside of the illness model without violating professional standards. How do you manage this? Um, the most useful thing is to be transparent and to say, I'm now in the role here, not of a psychotherapist and, or in the role of a medical professional, I would like to now step into the role of a guide for you um, in these wonderful practices of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness that can transform the heart and mind. Um, and so I will be in that role with you. And as you become transparent and name that, um, you already set the ground for a different kind of relationship. Um, you might also add, in this role, I try to see that what is um, the most positive in each person and foster a well-being, um, your own attention and your own gifts so that those grow within you. Now, four, can you speak to the role of a teacher interacting without reactivity to students' projections, both positive and negative? Yeah. Um, it takes practice. There, some of them will idolize you. Some of them will think you're not good. You'll get comments of good and bad, praise and blame, basically. And how do you practice with the praise and blame that come from your students? First, quiet yourself and take a breath, even before you teach and realize some will like it and some won't. And even if you go back to the great historical masters and teachers you know, for humanity, like the Buddha or Jesus or, or um, other great sages, sometimes people liked what they had to say, and sometimes people didn't. Praise and blame are part of being human. And your job in some way is not so much to work for praise and avoid blame, but it's to try to speak the most helpful and deepest and heartfelt truth that you know in a really simple way, this is what worked for me. I hope this helps you. This is what's worked for people over thousands of years. I hope you practice with this and find it a benefit. Give it a try. Um, some people then will say, oh, you're so wonderful. Thank you. Let it, let it be received with a bow. Let it go. Some will say, this class didn't work for me. Well, thank you. Maybe there's something to learn from that. You know, is there something that you could help me understand that would have made it more useful to you? But other than that, this is called being a human being. 
And every relationship and every circumstance asks us to listen in this way. Um, praise and blame are just part of the game. As I prepare to coordinate a silent retreat day, I don't. I feel the program's been deficient in providing me with the, the tools, how to frame the day, and ideas for mindful communication. Again, I'd uh, recommend you look back at Christiana Wolf's book and at the material we gave for the four and six week classes, because a day long, <clears throat> in a way, is a summary day of those very same um, teachings of sitting and walking and um, practicing and giving instructions in body and emotions and thoughts and walking and loving kindness and so forth. And you structure your day in that way. Trust yourself. Um, you know how to do that. And then how do you break silence at the end of the day? <clears throat> you can say, now we're about to break silence. Um, start to pay attention to what that's like in yourself. Maybe do it simply. Turn, why don't you have the students turn to one other person and talk a little bit about something that was important for them in the day or that they learned. And then after doing <clears throat> in pairs, maybe in a group of four, and then coming back and letting them share that, talk about what it means to carry the inner silence back into the world. Um, in teaching my first practicum, I wonder what exactly is my role as a teacher? Is it simply to share wisdom, practices, and trust that for the students who are ready, the seeds will germinate? Or is it to sometimes lovingly nudge students in the direction of really committing to a regular practice? Such a beautiful question. And the answer, as in all good Zen questions, this or that, is yes that both of them are true. You do share wisdom and trust the students, and you can also nudge them a little bit, nudge them in a good direction to commit to a practice. And you will know, you play with this and sense if that's helpful to them or not. Um, I've been asked many times, what type of meditation do you teach? Um, what lineage of the insight path? Are we Dharma teachers? You're... I think the simplest answer is to say that you teach mindfulness meditation and compassion and loving kindness meditation. And then she says, isn't that associated with MBSR, with mindfulness-based stress reduction? It is, but that was because MBSR is actually based on the trainings of mindfulness that come both from the Buddhist lineage and, frankly, from the teachings that I and others who began to offer these trainings 45 years ago in the West, um, offered. So John Kabat-Zinn, who's a wonderful teacher and dear friend, created MBSR. He did it after attending mindfulness retreats. Um, so uh, you, we, you actually have the real goods. I mean, MBSR is wonderful. It's not a, I'm not saying anything other than praise for it. But um, you teach mindfulness meditation. And you teach uh, loving kindness and compassion meditation in these practices. What about feeling the need to know everything? How do we not know everything and provide a great student experience? Another beautiful question. All these are so good. Um, you don't know everything, and I don't. And frankly, nobody does. <laughs> and it's really helpful to remember that. Um, so you teach what you know. Um, and one of the most beautiful things is to watch a teacher. I mean, I didn't see it with you know, 
great Zen masters and the Dalai Lama, and someone will ask them, Dalai Lama say, mm, I don't know. I'm not sure the answer or, or the, you know, whatever teacher it happens to be um, uh, who's a master. And that's a beautiful answer. And I can often love to be able to say that this is not something. Let me reflect on that. Or this is, I don't know the answer to that. You're not teaching all knowledge and wisdom. You are teaching some profound and beautiful possibilities of opening the heart, of quieting the mind, of living in a freer way in relation to all that arises. Um, and you can say, this is what I know. This is what I have learned. Um, could Jack lay out some guidelines for setting teacher-students boundaries? Having a student show exceptional interest feeds the teacher's ego and can cause problems. The boundaries are pretty simple. Um, they're ethical ones, basically. Um, your ethical boundaries are, you know, you don't go drinking with students. You don't sleep with your students. You don't, you know, get engaged in those ways at all with students. And we'll be sending out a more detailed code of ethics for everyone. Um, Beyond that, it becomes intuitive. Sometimes the people in the groups you teach may also be colleagues, or they may be people who become, you know, friendly in some way, and that's fine. But if they're adoring you and feeding your ego and so forth, this is just your practice. Um, again, we're back to that very interesting and important question of praise and blame. You will have both. Who are you? Um, in spite of the praise and blame, what do you know that's true in yourself that matters, that you care about, that you want to offer, um, independent of whether people say, oh, you're great or you're not so good, um, or they adore you sometimes, you know, and then they blame you another time. This is part of the role of a teacher to somehow center yourself and be carrying some beautiful understanding without being caught by those around you. Um, I'd love to hear you speak about issues raised in the book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. We talked quite a bit about trauma in our um, retreats at 1440, and I would urge you to go back to listen to the, those sections again, or to look at really to read that book or, or to read the work of Peter Levine, for example, who does such beautiful trauma work, and understand that you're not therapists, but that you can be sensitive to the fact that trauma is there and help people ground in their own bodies and experience and create a sense of a deep resource of presence, which comes as you do. Um, Students say metta is like an affirmation. What's the difference? Um, metta, loving kindness, compassion phrases, um, I would call more an intention of the heart. When you have an affirmation, I am loving, I am compassionate, um, it may not be true. Um, but if you say, may I be filled with loving kindness, may I be safe, um, it turns the heart in the direction of uh, this possibility. May you be held in compassion. May you be protected. Um, it is an intention of the heart um, that turns our energy and our gifts and our intelligence and more than that, um, the qualities of our being to hold that person um, beautifully. 
Self-doubt is my biggest challenge. Who am I to be teaching this? I've been teaching for some years, and I still have judge, self-judgment, anxiety, fear of failure. Face it, you're a failure. No. <laughs> We're all failures in a way. Remember that that um, that poem, the line I, I read to you during the training from the beloved Zen master Ryokan in Japan. And he said, um, last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. You know, um, our idea isn't really to perfect ourselves or have other people perfect themselves. Um, doubting is natural. Being anxious is natural. Judging yourself. These are all programs in there and you can bow to them and say thank you for your opinion not now actually i'm busy teaching or um, thank you for trying to correct or protect me i appreciate that thank you and then go on hold what arises of your self-doubt your anxiety your judgment self-judgment which are natural um hold it all with compassion this is a place for your real tenderness for yourself i want to um, affirm the basic goodness in everyone um, and I think cultivating compassion will help. Um, but I can say that I cannot yet say that it's true for me with every fiber of my being. I might be able to say it, but it's not a hundred percent authentic. So maybe it's 80% authentic. That's really good. <laughs> Affirm what you can, you know, offer the beauty and know that, you know, you're growing into this like anything. How do you work with the desire for fame? I want to study Dharma deeply and give it away for free and raise a family, you know, which also takes money. I would just say um, it's another thing to be mindful of. We all have our desires. For fame, it might be to be recognized, to be valued. And in part of it, it's to begin to value yourself, that you're a worthy, beautiful being on this earth and no being like who has ever existed before. And so you might as well inhabit it and love it. Um, and as you become more loving of yourself and inhabiting your well-being, it affects everyone else around you. Recommendations for groups that uh, composed of your own psychotherapy patients or coaching clients. Again, going back to that other answer, it's really helpful to announce your new role and say, in this group, I'm going to be functioning in a different way in the role of mindfulness teacher, meditation teacher, teacher of compassion. And that's what we'll be doing in this very different way. And let them know that. I've been asked to teach in businesses. Um, do you have uh, some ideas for sharing, initiating mindfulness in business? Tarbuck and I did this um, program for Sounds True that many of you may know called Mindfulness Daily at Work. It's 40 days of 15 minutes a day, and it's the same training that we've been doing, but it also comprises uh, 40 different days of exercises and practices to do in the workplace. So you might want to listen to that, and it'll be reminders of things that are helpful. Um, can you help with group sharing? Um, I had a difficult time in my recent practical getting anyone to share. You know, this comes from trust, and I don't know where your practicum is, um, Stacy, or the particular um, 
circumstances, but people share either when it's modeled by you as a teacher and they feel like, oh, this is a safe place, or maybe in a circumstance when there's trust. Um, and so you can try that. But also, if people don't share, instead of going, oh my gosh, this is, I'm doing something wrong, this is a failure, you sit for a minute or two, and then you say, it seems that there isn't any sharing today. Um, instead, we're being together in silence. And silence is a beautiful thing in our lives. You can name it and acknowledge it. It invites a different kind of connection and presence to be here. And as you stay with the silence, very often, then another um, person will speak up. You'll be surprised. Um, I've taught several classes now. I find, despite my encouragement, very few students actually have a daily formal practice. How can I encourage them? Um, it's hard in our culture. We're so busy. Uh, you might either encourage them to be in touch with one another and make a, have a practice buddy that they um, connect with in the group and that they then text or email or something with so that they're, did you sit today or you, you practice together three times a week or something like that. And the other is you could, again, recommend programs like Mindfulness Daily, this 15-minute-a-day training with Tara and I, um, for them to try to kind of help keep the spirit going afterward. Next question. I realize we're halfway through, and I've, we've got four or five questions, and I've only gotten through one, but I'll, uh, I'll go on to the question two. What are your questions about expectations that uh, students hold about teachers? Hmm. Otara did a live broadcast in January about living aspirations and imagining you only have one year left to live or one month or one week. When I did this in my group, several team members were visibly emotional. I felt terrible that maybe I was doing this exercise in an inappropriate setting at work and maybe it was too much for an intro class. And you know what? Trust yourself. That may be so. It may not be the right thing to do in a work class or certainly not at the beginning. You more want to help people come into a wise and loving relationship with their own body and their own emotions and so forth. Um, and that's a little bit more advanced practice. Um, and then you'll know when the right thing to do this is. Um, as teachers, is our responsibility to give initial instructions to participate at a level that feels safe for them and I would say yes. Again, there's a lot of wisdom in each of these questions that you've asked, um, and you do understand this. A lot of it, too, comes down to how you, um, how you sit in front of them. Um, because much of what you're teaching, while it includes clear instructions about how to become mindful of breath, body, sounds, emotions, thoughts, the world around you, relationships, they're going to be looking at you. And that's underneath many, many of these questions. And you don't have to be some great, you know, enlightened Zen master or imitate something. Um, but they want to feel that you're there with them, that you're genuine, that you're listening with your heart, that you say we're in this together as human beings, and that these are things that really can help 
that can really make a difference. They can really transform your life. I think about the middle school classes that I've taught and the kids that I've run into afterward who say, you know, I never knew anything about meditation, but boy, I got into a fight at school or bullied or uh, problems with my dad who drinks it. And I learned how to quiet myself from all that fear or all the things that made me so angry or upset. And I'm so grateful. So you are a carrier in that way of this possibility of wisdom and love, basically. A lot of the teaching is that you're genuine and authentic um, and that you love these people. And you may not love all of them right away. You know, some may, you know, trigger your own kind of judgments and things. And then you bring compassion to that. Here we are with a human mind and we have our loves and our judgments Let's be together and hold it all with compassion. Your being and your presence, just the fact that you can be a little bit calm in the middle of the storm of this world and say there are ways to find a more peaceful heart, ways to find a more compassionate relationship to yourself and others um, is an enormous gift. Can you offer guidance with regards to boundaries, regard to availability outside of class? Sometimes I feel overwhelmed with requests from students for individual time after class, lunches, coffee. You know, this is a very individual thing, but my experience is that it's helpful to tell them, again, to be transparent and say, um, I'm really happy to be here and at class and I can stay after and answer some questions. Um, but after that, um, I've got to go and I'm not so much available in an individual way to people because I've got other obligations and other things that I tend to in my life. So just to be able to be loving and transparent at the same time. Students seem to think teachers have everything in their life together. I know you all do. I know how together you are. But sometimes our lives aren't per per perfect. Um, recognizing that with a mindfulness practice, there's calm in the midst of chaos. How do we share that our lives aren't per perfect? And this really has to do with self-revelation. And we're all different about it. Some people are easy with that, um, like Ryokan. And I know that when I listen to teachers like Ram Das or um, various other, you know, self-revealing teachers, Pema Chodron, sometimes when she writes about her difficulties, Tara, the, the, that kind of self-revelation is good if it works for you and if you have some perspective in it. You can't do it when you're in the middle of it. Suppose you just had a really big conflict at work or in your family and you're coming in. If you're still in it, and you know, that person treated me so bad and I'm so angry and I don't know what to do with it. That's not helpful. But if you have got some distance and perspective and can say yesterday or last week or whatever, this whole thing happened and it triggered me, I got caught. And then I remember to breathe. I felt my feet on the earth. I felt the space of loving awareness or compassion for myself and them for the struggle. And then it becomes really helpful. And they go, oh, this is somebody who's showing me that it's possible to practice in this way. Um, so you really have to listen for yourself, share a bit in some way, um, but it has to be from the place that you gain some wisdom 
or understanding. How do we shift expectations from us as knowledge keepers to the students as knowledge keepers? Another really beautiful question. Um, a language I like to use very often when I begin to teach is to tell people that in many ways what I'm about to offer is a reminder to them. I like the word reminding and reminder of something that they already know is true. You know that it's possible to live with a more peaceful heart in the midst of the changes of the world. You know that having compassion for yourself as you struggle or others can really benefit you. You know that seeing with greater clarity, not being so reactive, is really a, a way that um, is helpful for you and the people around you to live more wisely. And so using this language of reminding them what they already know helps to shift from us as the carriers of knowledge to them. Um, what about self-disclosure about your own awakening experiences? I think most importantly, just being honorable in yourself and being able to say, this is what I've learned or this is what's helped me. Um, that's plenty. And that's beautiful. They see you as a human being and not as something that you're trying to express some ideal or even the deepest thing you've ever seen, um, which may not fit in a circumstance. Um, but being authentic, being kind to yourself, slowing down, being loving with them, and saying this is part of awakening to be where we are. That's what's beautiful. Um, how to engender and maintain trust trust with students when they're hoping I will be ideal rather than actual? Same sort of question. I find that humor helps a lot. As you know, I and Tara too will tell little stories or make jokes or turn things in a humorous way. And one Tibetan Lama that I was teaching with, this famous Tibetan Lama, nudged me at one point. We were both sitting in front of a large group. And he said, now I see what you do. You get them to laugh. And then when their mouths are open, you can pop the pill of wisdom in. And there's something about <clears throat> having a lightness in what we teach and humor about ourselves or the world or circumstance that allows people then to trust um, that we're in it together. And that kind of phrase, we're humans, we're in the human incarnation, we're in this together. Here's how we navigate. These things help, otherwise we're like a boat without a rudder. But with these tools and these understandings, we navigate beautifully. <clears throat> All right, so the more questions about being real <clears throat> and trying to live a life that's consistent with the teachings. This is one of the best things about learning to be a teacher of these wisdom gifts. And that is that they become a mirror. And you say these lovely, beautiful, you know, wise teachings. And then inside you go, or I have, I go, whoops. I actually didn't do that this morning, you know, with my family or and when I got upset at work or I forgot all about that. And it actually has you 
<laughs> it has you have to look at yourself. Um, and that's not a bad thing. And then you go, oh, I wish I or I should or whatever. You say, thank you for that. This is a beautiful reminder. When you teach, it actually is teaching yourself as much as anybody else. And you can share that with your students. You know, you get real and say, this is what I'm learning. I found some students expect teachers to guide them into a trance-like state or a deep state of relaxation. Um, and then they get frustrated when this isn't the outcome. So this is really important to say from the very beginning um, that mindfulness is different than many other kinds of meditation. There are many beautiful kinds, some which are focused on creating a specific state of calm or transcendence. But mindfulness is an invitation to bring loving awareness and find a centeredness or peacefulness or stillness exactly where we are with whatever states are present. Sometimes the mind will be spacious. Sometimes it will feel frightened or small or tight. Sometimes the heart will be open. Sometimes there will be anxiety, you know, or, or regret. And the beautiful thing about the practice that we're doing together is that we can bring the great heart of compassion that is in us and the loving awareness of mindfulness that is our birthright to hold exactly what's present here and now. And this is the great gift. This is the, um, uh, the true um, goal to be where we are and to be awakened with our love and our understanding here. That's the, that's the direction of meditation. This is what, what mindfulness offers. Question three, um, again, there are 20 questions with this one, and then there's a fourth, oh, five questions, wow. All right, do you have any questions on teaching in multicultural settings? Um, and people ask, what are the common pitfalls of teaching, or how do you do this in the, as a white teacher, or how do you um, invite others who are, not in your communities, particularly people um, who are more diverse, if you have a particularly um, white uh, sangha or community and so forth. So there's a whole series of questions like this, um, like suggestions for how a white male oppressor can attract and teach other populations. Or um, if I act from this biased place and see it, how do I get over, I can, get overcome with embarrassment or shame and don't quite know what to do, how to restore my trusting connections. And part of it is really just to be loving and straightforward. The first thing that I like to say when I teach is that everyone who's in this room is welcome, that the, the gates of the teachings, these ancient and beloved teachings that are part of the birthright of humanity are your birthright, and they welcome everyone, um, every uh, person's um, race and class and background and sexual orientation and ability, whoever you are, whatever your body that you're in, these gates open and you are really welcome here. So creating that field of welcoming is a very beautiful thing to do. 
And then, of course, you'll make mistakes. And I have um, many times because we are programmed um, in a kind of unconscious sea of racism in our culture. Um, and it's, it affects us all. And so the most useful thing is to be patient um, and to be mindful, believe it or not. So if something difficult happens or someone raises their hand and they say, you know, you say this and it made me feel bad or it feels like it's an unconscious um, act of racism or aggression or something, it might bring up your shame or all those emotions. And you can say, you know, let me just sit with this for a moment. This is... Um, important that you say it. I value it. It touches places where I feel insecure, where I might feel my own shame or embarrassment. Um, and I want to feel these things. And I also want you to know that it's my intention, not only to be respectful of you or everyone, but also to learn from these things. I feel like we're in a time and a culture where we all need to do this. So I appreciate your reminding me or telling me. Um, and this kind of transparency, ability to name what's happening as it happens, is one of the greatest modelings and gifts. And it'll take practice. It won't happen right away. Um, but over time, you get more comfortable and you realize that what's happening in the group, as I said, if it's silent and no one answers or no one speaks up, then you can say, oh, beautiful. We'll have a period of silence now. It's so unusual in our culture. Let's treasure this. Or a difficulty comes or somebody gets upset. You can take a pause and say, ah, oh, now you're upset or now the group feels upset. Let's sit with this and make this too part of our practice. How can we hold this with compassion? How can we hold each other in this way? And in this way, navigating what comes up will be... Um, part of the practice that you guide people through. Now, there's a lot of other questions in here about multiculturalism. A number of them is, uh, you know, I live in, a, in an area where that's not very diverse. How do I, you know, expand to, to include others? And, of course, you can look for opportunities, but in some way, again, I urge patience. You're new teachers, you're learning, and it's a beautiful thing to be doing. It's a really beautiful thing. And I have a great deal of trust in what you're doing. And it's a little bit like bees and honey. If you're putting out love and presence and the capacity to be free in the middle of experience and to live more connected and more wisely, um, to be less fearful and reactive, to learn compassion, over time, people will know and people will be attracted and you can trust it. So two more sets of questions. What questions arise for you about the qualities you feel are important in your teaching role? How familiar with our students can we be without being too close as a teacher? Sort of the question we had before where I said, don't drink with them and don't sleep with them. You know, and I'm saying that in the most straightforward and obvious way. Um, uh, but um, someone adds, sometimes some students have become friends who call me to discuss personal problems, seek advice. I enjoy spending time with them in these settings, but I wonder if it compromises my role as a teacher. So far, 
hasn't affected my classes, but I'd love advice on how to walk the line between being a friend and a teacher. Um, pay attention, trust yourself. These questions really are, are also about caring. And if you, you know, for some people, you'll need to set clear boundaries because you don't have the time or the bandwidth or the temperament to be social with students. And that's, that clarity is beautiful. For others like this, you may want to share friendships with them. Um, and as you do, pay attention and you'll know there'll be a kind of intuition when it feels right or when it feels like it's too much, they're expecting too much from you, they want you to now switch into the teacher or therapist role, or you're feeling like they're trying to, you know, in, inflate your ego, or, or you're getting too um, codependent with them and so forth. You can notice that. Um, and when you notice it, again, with a lot of compassion, we're just human beings trying to figure out how to be with each other and fit be kind to yourself, be kind to them. And then at some point you say, you know, for the amount of time we're spending together, my life is now such, I don't have so much time to do that, but it's so great that we do have our connection. Trust yourself. I think it's important for a teacher to find their own unique voice in teaching qualities. How do we do this? You know, when people become painters and artists or theater people, they'll learn Shakespeare or they'll copy, you know, some great painter for a time. Um, and as they do, they learn their own way of painting and their own way of acting or writing. Um, so mostly it takes practice. Um, you start and in some ways you may be following the model and the teachings that we've offered, you know, from Tara, myself, from Christiana Wolf's book, from other teachers that you love or that you gain things from. You may even hear their words coming out of your own mouth. Um, and then little by little, um, you inhabit it in a different way and you realize, well, I would see it this way and this is who I am. And you might be a, a more serious and kind of clear-minded person, you might be a more poetic and metaphorical person, um, you might, you know, be a more um, humorous person in temperament. Um, be yourself and trust it, and it, it takes its time. It's beautiful, these questions, because here you are, you're not that many months into being teachers, although some of you have been teaching for a while. Um, and you're already coming up with the most important questions and the sincerity of it is what's exquisite to me. And the fact that you're doing it and trust, trust yourself, trust me, trust that you're planting the seeds and all kinds of amazing things will grow. I heard um, that uh, the Dalai Lama said we must all cultivate warm heartedness and it resonated. But again, that takes practice. What if I'm not there yet? Can I be a good teacher? And I remember when Ajahn Chah was visiting our center in Massachusetts many years ago, my teacher, um, and we were out taking a walk on the front lawn, and um, he came up to Sharon Salzburg, who was also helping teach this retreat that he was a part of. 
Um, and he looked at her, he loved to ask really direct and straight questions. And he said, um, you're a teacher, right? This was like just the second or third day I'd introduce them. She said, yes. He said, so have you finished with all your suffering? And she said, no. And then he said, so how can you teach? And she said, I know there's suffering. I know there's causes. And I've seen that there's an end to it. I may not have completed it in my life, but I really know the path. And Ajahn Chah laughed. He found that a beautiful answer. And he said, very good. You tell that to the students. So this is where we are. We teach from where we are. Um, another question. Embodying imperfection. How can we be imperfect and balance the expectations of students for, of a teacher that embodies mindfulness? Yeah. <laughs> Here we are, we're human beings. And when I think about, for example, telling the community that I teach that uh, after almost 30 years that I was in the middle of a divorce and people were saying, how can a mindfulness teacher like you, you know, talk about mindful and compassionate relationships get divorced? And I said, well... I try to get divorced mindfully and with compassion. That's how I do it. Um, what can you do? We're human beings. And it doesn't hurt people to see that. And particularly, it's a gift to see it if we can hold our imperfections, even voice them, with some love of ourselves, with some humor about our human predicament. And most importantly, with the mindfulness, with the loving awareness of it, yeah, this is how we are. Um, sometimes we lose it, and then we remember again, and we're back to who we really are and what matters. And this is the nature of our human life. Um, and this invitation of our practice is to live in that way more fully. Um, isn't, and isn't it beautiful? One student commented in our feedback form from the recent five-week course I delivered that I should have more faith in myself, but the course was really good anyways. How important is an outer show of confidence? First of all, I'm thrilled that she said the course was really good anyway, and you should be too, um, because it shows you're, you're delivering, you're offering something that's changing her life, and it's beautiful. And then you may have shown your insecurity, and guess what? We are insecure. And it's what happens in the beginning. She may also have identified with you. It might have been hard, you know, for her to get up in front of a group. And she wants you to be more a stronger, you know, person or a stronger woman or man or whatever. Thank her for the honesty of it. Um, take it to heart in its own way. And the confidence you have is most, more than anything, it's a confidence in yourself. And that will grow. Um, you know, it comes in its own time. You do it a few more times. If you, you know, oh, I know how to do this. And you start to get feedback. Oh, this really helps people. It changes their life. Compassion, empathy, ethical behavior, walking the talk. What if you know a teacher? What if you know a teacher who's not exhibiting these qualities? Well, there are such teachers. Um, and there always will be because we're human. And it's painful to see because they can really be harmful to students in unethical ways. And there's stories in every tradition and in every profession 
you know, whether you go to the, the stories in the Catholic Church of priests who have misused children, whether you go to Zen masters who've done that, whether you look at um, physicians who betrayed um, their patients, and there's lots of that in the news or teachers and so forth. When we have a position of authority, um, it can be misused. And it's very, very painful. It's a kind of profound betrayal. But it's not your job to be the Dharma police and go around and name and tell everybody who's doing right and who's doing wrong. That would be um, beyond what's expected and really what's right for you. That being said, if someone privately comes to you or individually and says, I'm thinking of going and studying with such and such a teacher, um, what do you think? It's perfectly fine to say, you know, um, I've heard some things about this teacher's conduct that make me wary of them that might not be ethical. So you should know that that's a possibility and be careful with that. And that's a truly honorable thing to say, not as the Dharma police, but as someone who cares about that person in front of you and who's trusting you. One last question. We go just a few more minutes. Um, the last big question is, what questions are present for you about addressing social suffering? I speak about ending unnecessary suffering, but it sometimes seems trite in the face of real social suffering. How do I approach the fact that some people bear the brunt of social suffering? And I think the most important thing is to be able to name it and say, you know, we can talk about it, but in fact, the lives of people, how you know, how they are able to maintain their own um, families without enough resources or food or health care or be as refugees. Or, there's so many ways that people um, experience a great deal of suffering in our own society. And this is not something we can talk lightly about. However, we also know that the roots of this injustice and the roots of the difficulties, the conflicts in our society, the ways people are mistreated, these all stem from the human heart. They stem from greed and hatred and ignorance. And the work that we're doing in ourselves first is revolutionary. It's to face these energies of fear and confusion of greed and hatred and bring to them a wisdom and compassion. And only when we learn both as individuals and collectively in this group and collectively as a society to transform these energies, will, uh, will the suffering, the roots of those suffering be addressed? Yes, we may need to stand up. Yes, we may need to work for uh, justice. We may need to protect people and try to do that from a place of wisdom. But this inner work of taking the landmines out of our own human heart of taking the prejudice and the fear out of our hearts so that we can come to this world with the gifts that we have to help bring justice and help bring care to people. Um, uh, let me see. We're just about out of time. Um, I want to end with something for you that um, really comes from this last question. Because this is the question about um, 
our relationship to the world around us, and it matters so much. People are inundated by the news. Um, very often, there is a great deal of social and cultural anxiety. Um, and your class and your teaching becomes, it becomes a refuge for people. And then they get worried, well, if I get peaceful or quiet, you know, what about the others who are suffering? And remember that teaching that in Zen, there are only two things, you sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You quiet the mind and tend the heart and center yourself so that you can um, then get up and sweep the garden of the world, but from a place of understanding that doesn't add to the conflict and bring your own fears and angers to it, but brings a, the sense of beauty and dignity that you carry and that you offer to each being. Um, and this is a place of your compassion. This is the place of refuge. Um, this is the way that you help people to find their own gifts for the world. Um, and perhaps rather than reading this long poem, I, I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that um, and remind you um, that you are now in a position to do something that's really marvelous um, and mysterious and full of its own kind of grace. Um, and, you know, you fumble and you're, in, you know, insecure at times or full of doubt. Am I doing it right? Or how do I handle this? Um, and, of course, those, those are natural thoughts because you're beginning. Um, and you know why you have those thoughts? Because you care so much that underneath them all is your caring heart. And when you tune into that, not the place of judgment, but really the place of care, of love and compassion for yourself and others, that's the channel that really connects you with them. Um, and it's what you get to play with, and it's what you get to dance with. And we as human beings are in this dance with one another and the natural environment and with the joys and sorrows that make up this vast world and this human incarnation um and you're teaching people how to dance you know and how to love in a you know simple and profound way carrying these practices from uh, thousands of years it's a great gift that you get to do it for those that you teach and as much as for them for yourself so um i feel like we're blessed to be in it together and um i miss the 300 of you i can't wait to see you it's going to be next winter and i love you all and it's just going to be great to see you now having blossomed in whatever ways you have as teachers so thank you so with that we'll conclude our mindfulness meditation teacher certification program Jack, thank you so much for being with us tonight and getting through so many questions. Thank you very much. It was a little bit of a marathon, and it was fun. Thanks, Stephen. Bye, everybody. And thanks to everybody who sent all those questions in and participated. And uh, you know, your, your experience here has, has really made this a richer program. Thank you. For Sounds True, I'm Steve Lassard.